0: Hey there. Welcome to The Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid.
1: And I'm your producer, Zena Helingcha.
0: If you're like me, at some point in your childhood, you probably said the phrase, but that's unfair, to which someone, probably a parent, responded with, well, life's unfair. Which is, well, true. Historically speaking, inequality has always been present. But just what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about inequality? To learn more about this topic, we spoke with Professor Eric Shepard, an expert on the geographies of inequality. In this conversation, we learned that while, yes, the world is unfair, Why it is that way is up for debate. And how or where inequality is distributed is not as simple as we think. But most importantly, we talk about the ways that we as a global community need to begin thinking about inequality in order to tackle one of the most pressing issues on the horizon, climate change. And by the end of this conversation, we learned that geography may just be the thing that saves us. Because it could just be the key to begin thinking of these issues in a whole new way. It's good to be back with our first full-length episode of the Geography of Everything in quite a while. Um, If you've listened to the last little bits, you probably know that Zena and I are currently in two different places in the world. And today we're super excited because this is our first ever tri-national podcast (laughs) spread across three time zones with an extra special guest, Professor Eric Shepard. Not only is Dr. Eric Shepard very important name in the field. He is also one of the reasons that I personally found my interest in geography because his class that I took during my bachelor's really just changed the way I look at the world. So we're super excited to have you here. My pleasure. So just to get us started here, we wanted to know a little bit about you and your background and maybe a bit about your specialty within the field of geography.
1: Yeah, So by the age of 13, I already knew I wanted to be a geographer. So this was not a sort of late decision in life. I went to Bristol University. It was the only place that would admit me because I had not done very well on my advanced exams in geography. But they didn't care because they were going to do the new geography. They didn't care what you knew about the old geography, which was lucky for me. So I did my undergraduate work there. And I then moved to North America. I went to Toronto Um, for my master's and PhD and then taught for about 35 years at the University of Minnesota and I'm now at UCLA where I actually just retired this summer so that's my kind of intellectual trajectory. As a geographer I see myself as interested particularly in urban and economic geography but I've always taken advantage of the breadth of the discipline. In fact, when I started at Bristol, I thought I was going to be a geomorphologist. And then when I met some of the human geographers, I changed my mind. So I know a bit about the physical side of the discipline, um, and I've tried to take advantage of that, doing work on things like environmental justice. But as I said, my real focus has been kind of geographical, political economy, urbanization, questions of development around the world, and that's where a lot of my work is focused for the last couple of decades.
0: Um, So I remember when I took your class at UCLA, you talked about something that kind of blew my mind at the time. And you talked about the fractality of the world, and we'll link uh, a video of fractals in the bio in case someone needs a visual. But you talked about how within the rich we see poor, and within poor, we see the rich, and that countries and places and neighborhoods are not monoliths, that they ebb and they flow. And what this does is, is it challenges maybe some of the ways we might think about inequality. So I would like to start at the lowest level and I wanted you to maybe define what is inequality.
1: Well, I mean, I think the place to start is that as geographers, and geography is about studying the surface of the earth. The term geography is Greek, it means earth writing, and we live on a differentiated planet, right? Things are different in different places, otherwise geographers would have nothing to say. And so there are these two intersecting ideas of difference and inequality, and I think to understand inequality, you have to put it in conversation with the other so inequality is really measuring people on some kind of of scale this of that goes from essentially being in a good situation to being in a poor situation um, and so when we're talking about inequality we have some common measure in mind on the basis of that measure we we essentially rank people right how far you've made it along that process the obvious default example is income so we and an all-common way of measuring inequality, although certainly not the only useful way of doing so, is, is in terms of how much your purchasing power is. So that's the scale, and, and, and we rank people, in some sense, from rich to poor. But we also live in a world of difference. And, and, and there's not just environmental difference, the different climates and, 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 and landscapes around the world, but it's social difference. Differences in gender, differences in race, Differences in social class, position, or caste, or whatever those, those, those class characterizations are. And it's important to pay attention to how these are, these are very different things. So, so, to address questions of inequality, it's really about redistribution. How do we make, re, reduce the wealth of some people in order to enhance those of others if we use income as our measure? of inequality. But when it comes to other kinds of differences, human identity to take an example we talk about all the time these days of sexuality, race and gender and so on, there is a quite more of a politics sort of recognition, of empowering people who seem to, whose his perspectives seem to be marginalized in society. So these are two different ways of, of thinking about differentiation, right? One is, about inequality, the other is about difference, one is about a politics of redistribution, the other is about a politics of recognition, as Nancy Fraser has put it, um, but they're often bound up with one another. So certain social identities tend to be wealthy and, other social, and powerful, and other social identities tend to be marginalized and, and, and disadvantaged on whatever these inequality scales are. And so we really need to be keeping both of these in mind, even, though in, even when inequality is at the center of the conversation. And the other thing I would say here, just to come back to this, is, is that wealth is, is kind of the default way in which we think about inequality because we live in a capitalist society which values things on the basis of price and, and, and on the basis of your wages and so on. But that's only one way of measuring inequality. We can think about inequalities in terms of political power, we can think about inequalities in terms of people's influence on the web. We can think of inequalities in terms of other measures of how to live well or poorly that don't necessarily have to be measured in income terms. So we can have others. So, for example, um, there's been something of an interest in recent years in the idea of happiness and measuring people's sort of position in terms of how happy you are. So even though income is the default measure, there are many ways of thinking about how people are, if you like, doing well or not doing so well, and to limit ourselves simply to, to, to income measures would be overly narrow.
0: Wow, that's a very robust definition to get us started, and at least begin thinking about inequality in a way that's a little broader than what we would typically go to, right? So my next question coming off of that is, if we think about inequality today as something like income or technology, historically, before all of these things existed, you know, because capitalism in the grand scheme of things is rather new, so before this big capitalist revolution Did we still have inequality and maybe what did it look like? So basically, have we always been unequal?
1: There, I mean, yes, I would say inequalities have always existed. If you go look at, I mean, there are two ways of thinking about this. One is about thinking about this in place, right? So a group of people living in the same place, what kinds of inequalities might exist within those groups? but also inequalities from place to place. And as geographers, we're always thinking spatially as well as socially. So if you go long way back to, let's say, um, hunter-gatherer and subsistence societies long before the idea of capitalism came along with its ways of measuring inequality, um, we can certainly identify some groups of people, first of all, who are living better in their place than other groups of people. And often that would have a great deal to do with the physical environment in which they found themselves and whether that physical environment made it easy to collect the food that you need to sort of build the shelters that that are necessary in that particular location. And so here we can see differences in how well particular social groups are living from place to place based on the characteristics of those places themselves. So if you're living in a better climate or where the soils are richer or where, the, where access to wild animals to eat is easier, then you happen to be, by chance, in living in a better situation than somebody who's a more disadvantaged physical environment. So, and the, but so, so that's the difference from place to place. But then the difference in terms of within those societies, if you go back again to very early societies, people tended to live in a highly... It's a collaborative and collective way, and there weren't necessarily a lot of social differences within those societies, although one social difference which archaeologists and anthropologists have identified as quite persistent over time are differences in gender in terms of what the role of men was within those societies relative to the role of women, with a few societies being ones which it, where, where women have more power and influence, but the majority of societies being patriarchal rather than matriarchal, where where men have had more influence. But you don't see the kind of social inequalities within those societies that we are so familiar with today. And things really start to change as populations start to concentrate into permanent settlements, things that we've, we've come to call cities. Because as that process started to happen... In order for those cities to support themselves, they needed food to be brought in from the surrounding hinterland. And that required persuading people who were living in those rural areas to grow food, not just for themselves, but to support these urban settlements. And so here a kind of process of political influence and domination started to emerge, whereby um, people living in the cities came up with schemes, if you will, to persuade peasants to grow more than they need in order to support the urban population. And we start to see at this point clear social class differences emerging with rulers typically living in the cities, um, with religious leaders, and with the military who went around persuading peasants to grow more food to support these places, and then we start to see clear social class differentiations and inequalities in terms of quality of life or uh, however one might be measuring how well people are doing that are quite systematic, separating rulers from the military, from the craftsmen in the city, from the peasants in rural areas, and so on. So at this point in time, we start to see clear social inequalities emerging. And those inequalities are emerging on the basis of uh, a process through which one group of people is becoming wealthy, By getting another group of people working harder to support them. The peasants growing more food than they just need for themselves in order to support the city um, on the basis of, for example, believing in in a religion, coming to believe in a religion which requires you to to bring part of your harvest to the city to support people there, uh, to support the religious institutions, and, and so on. So as the geography starts to change, as we move away from kind of mobile small societies living in their own physical environments, we start to move towards a situation where social classes are emerging, but also unequal spatial relations, whereby agricultural surplus is being extracted from the surrounding area in order to feed the populations in the cities. So social and spatial inequality starts to take a different form.
0: Okay, so I'm hearing that there's a really important element here. And of course, you're a geographer, so you're trained to think of things in relation to space. But maybe one of the most remarkable changes in the way that inequality plays out today is in its geography. But that actually brings me to this next question. And it might be difficult to answer, given that we're talking about inequality in this fairly abstract way, but how unequal are we? And are we living in a more unequal time than in the past?
1: Well if I think that that's a big question, of course, a big historical question. What I would want to do is is in a very big picture sense, divide the evolution of human society into Four eras. So the first era is this era of small mobile settlements of people making the most of the environment in which they find themselves learning to live in harmony with that environment because if you exploit it you don't have many other options. So let's call that the sort of pre-capitalist uh, hunter-gatherer era. Um, and then the second era is the one that I was just describing as cities start to emerge And those cities then, in turn, historically come together into larger socio-spatial structures that we think of as empires, the Chinese Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, and so on and so forth. But clearly still here in a kind of era of pre-European empowerment. Um, So let's call that the era of pre-capitalist empires. And, those, and those, inside those empires, we, there is, again, this socio-spatial structure, whereby Rome or, or um, Xi'an, the capital of China, was the powerful place in those empires, extracting wealth now on larger geographical scales from within those territories that those empires control. The third era, then, becomes the era of European colonialism, And then the fourth era, after the end of colonialism, which we can date roughly in the 1960s, is this era of kind of capitalist and to some degree socialist development. Inequality was lowest in that first era uh, because it simply had to do with differences in local sort of environmental conditions. Inequality increases dramatically during these imperial eras, but particularly between imperial centers and their peripheries. But those inequalities are more, let's say, regional. They, they represent, they, they happen within the territory of each of these empires. The, the sort of Aztec Empire, the Mayan Empire, the sort of the, the, each of these have their own particular territories. But this process becomes global when Europe starts to colonize the rest of the world. And at that point in time, these inequalities increase and increase and increase. The vision has been that with the end of colonialism, and the obviously exploitative nature of that geography, right, whereby the European center was able to develop because it could exploit the peoples and resources of the rest of the world through slavery, through racial um, sort of denigrations of of, of non-European populations, and so on. The vision has always been that at the end of colonialism, we will enter an era of development where those inequalities will disappear. Um, And that has been a pretty fraught process. It's hard to, we certainly can't say that those inequalities have, have gone away. But what we can identify in this kind of capitalist era Are two periods of time. The first period of time, which I like to call the the sort of era of state-led development, really runs from the end of the Second World War in 1945, when the whole idea of development was was in in some sense invented in the West as a way of helping out former colonies as they become independent. And this era of state-led development runs as I said, from 1945 really into the late 1970s, and was a period of time in uh, the first world, or what we now sometimes call, like to call the global north, i.e., Western Europe, North America, Japan, and white settler colonies like Australia and New Zealand, it was an era where a sort of political and economic system was put into place to support people who were poor, uh, what we call the welfare state. Uh, and this was influenced by the economic ideas of, of a British economist called John Maynard Keynes. So the whole New Deal arrangement in the United States in the 1930s and in, across in, in Western Europe from the 50s through the 70s was this notion that the, the role of the state is to step in and control inequalities when those are created through market mechanisms. And to set it in place unemployment insurance and, and Social Security and all these kinds of things. Um, and that was a period of time where social inequality in the West was re, fell. And then under Richard Nixon, in, in the early 1970s, the tax rate on the wealthiest people in the United States was around about 95% of their wealth. And so there were, so there were massive ways in which the state stepped in to redistribute income and to create jobs and to apply... Sort of, help people out when they're unemployed and so on. Um, Now that didn't play out so in this way in other parts of the world, because one of the ways in which the West could provide sort of accumulate the wealth in order to provide these social programs was as a result of unequal economic relationships with the formerly colonized countries. So inequalities were increasing between the global North, between these Northern countries and, and, and the former colonies even as inequalities were falling within those northern countries. And they were often actually increasing in in former colonies where certain elite populations were favored by these development policies, whereas other people were disadvantaged. But that period of time, and and, and a guy called Piketty has has written a very famous book documenting this statistically, was a period of time where social inequality within the global north was falling quite significantly, but it was increasing internationally. This era of state-led development, then in about 1980, becomes replaced by an era of of market-led globalization, or neoliberal globalization, as we've come to call it, where the whole economic philosophy changed. Instead of thinking about the state as having this role of mitigating inequalities created by the market, we came to believe that the market will will solve all these problems by itself, and the state just gets in the way. And so at least up until the late 1990s, the, the whole policy prescription was get the state out of the economy, let the markets roll, and let's see what happened. And what happened was social inequalities in these northern countries started to increase dramatically. Um, and that has been an ongoing process since. To some degrees inequalities between the North and the South in certain selective ways have not been increasing. Then in some ways they've been decreasing. There have been certain countries in the global South to which northern corporations relocated industrial production or which which themselves developed their own indigenous industries, places like China, Korea, Taiwan. Um, And so those places were able in many senses to catch up in certain ways economically, but other parts of the global south are left behind even more so. And social inequalities within all of these countries have been significantly increasing. So even though there's a complex process of of some poor countries being able to catch up to some degree with wealthy countries as a whole, group of them, particularly in Africa, Latin America, um, and parts of Southeast Asia that have not been able to catch up where the gaps have increased. And within all of these countries, social inequalities have been increasing because of this philosophy that the state just gets in the way. And so now we're living in an era where these inequalities are every bit as great as they were in the uh, 100 years ago. And then this just raises a whole set of questions about whether the development policies and philosophies that in some sense have emerged out of northern institutions, out of northern academic institutions, out of places like the World Bank, are able to deliver on their promise of we have the answer, if you do the following, then you can become rich just like us.
0: Yeah, wow, it's very interesting what you're saying, that in the past maybe there was this system of trying to redistribute things and make it a little bit more equal, but it seems that now we've just sort of thrown that whole thing out the window. And in that process of throwing it all out the window, we somehow managed to make it worse, or at least as bad as it was. And I guess for me, that's pretty disheartening considering that I was born in the 90s, so it really makes me believe that we sort of screwed the pooch on that one. But I guess my question is coming from someone who's had uh, the opportunity and the privilege to travel a little bit both to global north and global south countries, something that I did notice is that these divisions aren't so clear cut, right? Like uh, not every person in Argentina is necessarily poorer than every single person in the US and vice versa, right? Not every person in the US is necessarily richer than every single person in Argentina. So then sort of how is it possible that we have a place like Skid Row in Los Angeles, which is one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And Skid Row, if you are not familiar, is just a place of pretty... Intense um, neglect, I would say, on many levels. But at the same time, you have a, neighborhoods in Cape Town in South Africa, for example, where people are making more money than I will ever make in my life and living more lavishly than I will ever live in my life.
1: Yeah. So the, this speaks to the complexity of these geographies of inequality, right? So, um, and one way to think about this is to, is to think about the ways, well, I mean, these terms North and South are very misleading. Uh, and it's perhaps worth going back to understand where they came from. So during the Cold War, the era of Soviet and American rivalry from the uh, end of the Second World War really into the 1970s, the way in which we talked about the world is as is, is, is if there were three geopolitical regions. the first world, which were the capitalist countries that we now think think you use the label "Global North" to think about. And then there was the second world, which were the communist countries in the sphere of the Soviet Union, along with places like North Korea and China. And then the third world, which were those countries that had been former colonies. Um, that would try to figure out how to throw off the shackles of of European empire and and make make themselves better off. Um, And the term third here often came to be read as third best. That wasn't the idea. These formerly colonized countries came together in Bandung in 1955 with the idea of constructing a third way for development. We're going to do it differently from those communist and capitalist countries. But, the, the, but persistent poverty meant that third came to mean third best. And so the terms north and south were invented in a way as an alternative nomenclature that seemed less pejorative than first, second, third. Um, but it was always misleading, right? Because when you talk, think about the northern countries, well, what about Australia and New Zealand? They are two of the southernmost countries in the world, but they are part of the north here. Um, so, 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 so the we have to be very careful in terms of specifying how we want to use these terms. And one of the misleading things which your question has pointed to is that we've tended to use these terms as a way of dividing the world into two global regions, the region of prosperity, the north, and the region of impoverishment, the south. But these geographies are so much more complicated than that. So we can, and to take an example that's familiar to me, because I've been doing a lot of research in Indonesia, over the last 10 to 15 years. Let, let, let's compare United States and Indonesia. So at one level, we can say, well, the United States is a wealthy country. It's part of the global north. Indonesia, a country with about the same population and the same east-west distance as, as, as the U.S., we think of as a poor country, and it's located in the global south. But then, you, as geographers, we're always interested in not just looking at one spatial territorial unit, but digging into the geographies inside those units, right? So when we start to dig into the geographies of uh, the U.S. and Indonesia, one of the things which comes out pretty quickly are differences in the amount of wealth that's circulating in cities versus the amount of wealth that's circulating in rural areas. And so we can identify within the United States cities as being relatively wealthy places by comparison to rural areas of the Midwest or, or, or the Southern United States. And you see the same kind of urban rural wealth inequalities in Indonesia itself. So here we can see within these countries, that there, they have their own north and south or core and periphery, if you will, which is a terminology that I think is a bit more useful than north and south. Then you turn to those cities and, and you walk into, as you said, you walk into, um, Los Angeles, and on the one hand, you've got Beverly Hills and and Bel Air, literally the richest places in in the United States, alongside a couple of counties outside New York City. Um, And then 15 miles away are um, not only communities of color that are struggling economically, but but homeless people who are living on the streets in in, in Skid Row. And so So here we can say, okay, we're in the city, but there are rich neighborhoods and there are poor neighborhoods. And even when you go into those neighborhoods, you see all kinds of differences. So Beverly Hills operates in part because it draws on poor people to come in and do the the grunt work for the rich, right? The the maids who literally have to walk up the hill to the villas where they work every day because there's no buses allowed inside Beverly Hills. The the undocumented migrants are coming to to do the gardens and so on. So wealth and poverty is existing side by side at every one of these scales. And exactly the same thing in Indonesia, where you can walk down the street and literally on the one side of the street are people living, as you said, with with a better quality of life than you or I could ever afford. They've got a chauffeur, they've got maids, and and, so on and so forth. On the other side of the street are people living in shacks. And so, so we have... So instead of thinking about the world as one rich block over here and one poor poor block over here, these are interwoven with one another at very different scales. And a concept which I've tried to use to capture this, and this is hard to do in, in a podcast, is the idea of a fractal. If you go and look at images of a fractal on the web, you'll see these really complicated spatial structures whereby at one scale you can see sort of, to what what are often depicted as kind of black and white patterns separated from one another. And when you did go down to lower scales, those patterns replicate again and again. And so here we really have to understand processes through through which wealth and impoverishment um, coexist at all of these different geographical scales. Um, And we need to understand the processes through which this happens. And one thing which I think is really important here is the question, how do we think about poverty? Do we think about poverty as a characteristic of people um, because they lack something, right? So, uh, or places because they lack something. So we, um, there's, there's there's a tendency to say, well, people are poor because they're lazy, right? Or, or because they didn't bother to get a decent education or because they've they've made a mess of the money that they've had, they've, 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 they've throwing their money away in the bar or gambling and so on. So one way in which we theorize poverty is is with kind of failure of of people to do the right thing. And we see the same thing when we talk about the poverty of places, right? So one way of thinking about the poverty of places is to say those places lack something. So the very famous development economist Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University really brought this argument to the center of, of development thinking in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s by saying, well, places which are poor are poor because either they're in the tropics or they don't have access to navigable water. And you could construct maps to show that poor places are like this. But, the, but again, it's a kind of argument to say that poverty is because something is missing. That's one way of thinking about poverty. And in a geographical term, that about poverty is something that is a characteristic of a place. So this place has, has, doesn't have natural resources, it doesn't have, have navigable water, it has the wrong kind of climate, wrong kind of soil, therefore people there are going to be poor. It's kind of similar to the first era of uh, inequality you mentioned earlier, determined by the environment. Yes, exactly. It's kind of applying that mode of, yeah, that mode of thinking to the contemporary world. So the other way to think about poverty is to think about poverty as a relational process whereby people become wealthy by impoverishing others. So colonialism was self-evidently a way in which European societies in general could become wealthy by exploiting the peoples and resources of the rest of the world that they controlled militarily and, 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 and politically. Of course, that wasn't... And people within the Europe benefited unequally from that process, but everybody in some sense was benefiting from those kinds of relationships. So here, impoverishment is a, so, is, a space, is a social and spatial process, whereby it's not just something that people lack, it's something which has been foisted upon them as a result of the unequal relationships they find themselves in. So it's going to be a social process, right? So um, people living in Beverly Hills are can maintain their wealth by, by underpaying their staff, right? And, and so that would be that kind of process, but it's also a spatial process. And the sort of belief was with the, that, that with the end of colonialism, that spatial exploitation would disappear, but it hasn't really. And so here we have to think about the ways in which places may be economically disadvantaged, not simply because they have the wrong local characteristics, place-based characteristics, but because they're involved in political and economic and cultural relations with other places that continually it pull people down here in order for people in those other places to become wealthy. Um, and, and, and so here, um, under the, 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 uh, the uh, Dutch sociologist Andre Gunder Frank called this a process of underdevelopment. Whereby, underdevelopment is not just something which has failed to happen, let's say, in Africa in the way that has happened in Europe, but it's something which has gone backwards in Africa as a result of its relationships with Europe. So this relational way of thinking about poverty is very important. And and as you said, Zelie, this really pushes us to think about poverty. It's not just a characteristic of, of people and places, but it's something which is being created through the relationships between those people and places and others that we think of as wealthy and powerful.
0: Wow, so that's a that's a really interesting way, or at least a, a pretty interesting dichotomy in terms of how to approach this, this topic, because on the one hand, you have this kind of frame of thinking of saying, um, you know, the pie is unevenly distributed, and on the other hand, you have this way of thinking that, the pie is unevenly distributed, but because I have more of it, you by default have less. And I do think they they ultimately kind of lead to the same conclusion in a way, but there is this element with this sort of first way of thinking about it, where like you mentioned in, in what you were just saying, that it's kind of like blaming poor people for being poor, or that they're poor because they lack something, or because they have trait X, Y, or Z, as opposed to kind of trying to think about the historical context that have contributed to them ending up in this situation. Whether it's just because they they literally haven't received these opportunities, or if because of these historical contexts, they're literally unable to yeah. escape this yeah. poverty. And, and,
1: and this has released really important implications because the way in which we think about poverty also affects how we think about solving the problem of poverty. So to take one, one example, the, the, the World Bank, um, which was... An institution created by northern countries and largely controlled by northern countries, but created to bring development to the to the to the formerly colonised world, its approach to this has always been one of saying, "Okay, this problem is that is a place-based problem. We need to fix that by changing the characteristics of those places," and the particular sort of thinking that came to dominate here was to say that um, we need to put in place in, in, say, Nigeria or Guyana or Cambodia, the same kind of political and economic institutions as we have in Britain or Germany or the Netherlands or the United States. So we change the characteristics of that place. If they have a market economy like we do, if they have a political system like we do, then they ought to be able to come as rich as we are because we've changed the place-based characteristics. And so there were what were called structural adjustment programs in the 1980s and, and various versions of those since, which were all about intervening in countries to change the way in which they run themselves so they run themselves more like the West and then they'll become rich. If you think of poverty as in terms of something that's missing in a place, the idea is you come in and you put that thing in the place and magically this should happen. But it hasn't happened, right? So these institutions were put in place across Africa, across Latin America, across parts of Asia, but development didn't follow. Because what the World Bank was missing in its thinking was this way in which this these, these, these lack of, of economic wealth in formerly colonized countries is also a result of the unequal economic and political relationships between those countries and the global north. We had this idea that free trade was a kind of rising tide that lifts all boats if we get the, if we allow goods to be traded freely between countries and everybody has a comparative advantage then everybody should be able to benefit from this by doing different things. They don't all become the same, but they all have a role to play. But when you actually look at how trade has worked, it's remained unequal. So even in a world where the political power, where countries were given political independence, and were no longer politically dependent on European countries, the legacy of the role in the global economy that they found themselves in, which was one of providing raw materials, right? Except now we don't, we're not required to do it, but, but we were locked into that kind of model. Was, free trade was happening, but was not happening in a way which enabled third world countries to catch up. So connectivity-based thinking here, saying, okay, if poverty is relational, it's not just a place-based characteristic, pushes us to ask different kinds of questions. How can we change those trade relationships so they're no longer this systematically disadvantaging uh, commodity exporting countries? and so so it really matters it really matters how we think about this because the the think about this in terms of, of the characteristics of people in place versus about thinking about this as a relationship between wealthier and 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 poorer people in place it's, leads us to very different kinds of policy
0: yeah but i i imagine then that trying to find a solution for the relationship would be a bit more tricky than trying to find a solution to the place because fundamentally what it would require is for all these people that have the power and all the people that are in a power to let go of some of that and i think that it's a pretty you know known fact that that's a pretty hard thing to do right convince people to let go of some of their power. And even thinking about it today in the US, I mean, we're seeing all these billionaires using every mechanism possible to avoid paying taxes because they really do not want to be taxed despite them being in an incredibly powerful position as compared to the rest of the population. So then, I mean, it becomes really difficult to try to solve these issues using this strategy.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. I mean, so, so of course, so these the, the billionaires believe that they become rich because they're smart and, 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 and disrupt, have disrupted the economy and so on. And, 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 and um, now I'll... Uh, Jeff Bezos made this announcement today. I'm going to turn around and give some of that money back when I die, right? Uh, but, but it's not like people, that's lot, not like I've taken it from everybody. I just happened to, through my smarts, have made all this money, and I'm going to be generous enough to, to pass it on to, to somebody else. Uh, and, and so that's part of the problem, is, is that for rich people and rich countries tend to think of themselves as having reached that situation through their own hard work entirely not paying attention to this exploitative relationships which have also been part of how they've become rich, and, 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 and then don't feel any obligation to, um, for reparations or whatever it might be in, because of those historical relationships. Often the argument is also made, well, that yes, that happened, but it happened 50 years ago. It wasn't my fault, and so why should I have to do something now? But the other challenge here is a kind of... Political policy challenge, right? So if I'm the co- I'm the government of Nigeria, really, what all I can do is try and change things in Nigeria. I don't have control over what's happening globally, and in order for that to happen, you need to build global institutions which are not ju- which are more than just a bunch of nation states each trying to sort of figure out what's best for them relative to other nation states, but one where which where the, where those relationships in some sense are problematized and where a kind of in global policy domain starts to emerge to uh, bring these problems together. So to take an, a very current example of the, of the COP negotiations that are happening right now in Egypt, um, there's this whole argument, should the countries of the global North be paying reparations to the countries of the global South because of the ways in which they're struggling with global heating, right? And, and, um, and the only way to get a systematic answer there is, is for countries of the global north to recognize, in some sense, how they have created these problems in the global south, and therefore have some responsibility to do something about that. But it's, if you watch these COP negotiations as they go on from year to year, this is the one thing which nobody ever really feel, finds a resolution on, what's called sort of, I think they call called loss and damage reparations, it never really quite gets pulled off. So you're right. I mean, there is this... The challenge here is that the wealth and power is in the hands of certain people who don't think of themselves as responsible for impoverishment else, elsewhere and all morally obligated to do something about that. They might do it on the basis of charity, but not because they feel morally obligated.
0: Yeah, but then you also touched on this sort of very important bit here, which is as these next decades sort of come, climate change will undoubtedly be a bigger part of our lives. But at the same time, the effects of climate change are not going to be felt equally. I mean, we're already seeing it not being felt equally, right? If you think about these recent floods in Pakistan where the government just really did not have the capacity and the resources to deal with it. And you know, this wasn't a a unique circumstance. You see the same things happening in countries like Bangladesh, where they realistically just don't have the capacity to deal with it. Whereas if we sort of shift our focus here, and I think a really good example of this is like hurricanes on the east coast of the US, right? when a hurricane hits florida like obviously it's tragic and and you know it causes a lot of destruction but the us has quite a an ability to to deal with this and quite a capacity to sort of fix these issues and help people that are affected whereas in these island nations when they get hit by by hurricanes things are really Destroyed and they're really left in this state of ruin for for quite a long time. So then my question is, is as climate change becomes a more and more pressing issue throughout the world, how does that play into this whole uh, conversation about inequality?
1: Well, I think this is one of the places where geography, one of the strengths of geography really comes to the fore in terms of thinking about Because geography as a discipline, one of its core interests has always been thinking about the relationship between the social world and the natural world, or what's often referred to now as the more-than-human world. So these nature-society relations have always been a core theme in geography. When I went to be an undergraduate at Bristol, I could do physical geography, or I could do human geography, or I could do some mixture of the two, but it was all part of the discipline. And the thing here is that climate, the global heating, as I prefer to call it, rather than climate change, because that's really what it is, is bound up with these social, socio-spatial processes, and we need to think geographically about this. And so, here are some of the questions you pose. Right? The first question is, where was this carbon consumed? That's who, whose emissions now are the source of global heating? Well, it's classically, at least up until the last twenty years. Been predominantly consumed and, and the emissions created in the global north, right? But then local events here create this, this global problem. So there's a rescaling of this from particular places creating this to something which everybody has to deal with. The second question is, okay, where were those resources extracted from that enabled the industrialization which created these carbon emissions? And who is disadvantaged by that process. And then, as I just said, the question of, of how does what happens, lo- how, do, how do local processes affect what's happening globally? And so then we have a process of global heating, but that then comes back down to differentially affect local places locally. If you live in Canada, you love global heating because all of a sudden the winters are getting shorter, agricultural productivity is increasing. But if you're in the tropics, it's a terrible thing because things were hot enough and and water was scarce enough there already, and all of a sudden these problems are being magnified. So this global process has very differential effects in different places, in part as a result of their physical geography. If you're on the coast, you're vulnerable to to sea level rise in a way in which you're not inland. Um, So where are these effects greatest and then the key question you're asking is what does that mean in terms of how vulnerable people are and it's not just about the physical impact, it's about the capacity of places to deal with this. So the hurricane which goes through um, Puerto Rico has a completely different effect to the one it has in Florida because Puerto Rico doesn't have FEMA and the resources to, to come together and solve the problem. Pakistan doesn't have the resources to help people out after floods in the way in which, um, let's say, Mississippi or the U.S. would have for floods that might be coming down down the Mississippi. So who is most vulnerable where and how do we understand that process, right? And how does this feed into the effects of global heating on these already existing socio-spatial inequalities in terms of of wealth and poverty? Um, And here, the key question which is really being debated at COP is what we might call climate injustice. The idea that the people who are most vulnerable to these processes are those who are least responsible for the global heating which is causing them in the first place. This is literally the argument that the southern countries are making at these COPs to try and persuade the north to make good on what have been so far relatively empty promises about, um, uh, about about providing money to help these countries deal with global heating. But it also has to do a great deal with how we, th- again, about the policy issues, right? So the standard way in which we've come to think about solving carbon emissions is for each national territory to make a pledge to reduce our carbon emissions by a certain amount. And as we know, those pledges have been, com- have been very problematic because countries have not really, most countries have not made good on the pledges they've made or some, like the U.S. under Trump, came got away from making pledges altogether. But that way of thinking about the carbon emissions problem is to say that each country has a responsibility for the carbon that it's emitting and has to solve that problem locally. That's this place-based thinking. But if we look at how carbon moves around the world, we think about it relationally, we, we need to ask ourselves the question, for example, okay, is the carbon being produced in China, which is a massive producer of carbon, although it's working hard now to green its economy, is that China's responsibility? Because they should have done this differently. Or is it our responsibility, because the goods which are being produced there, which their carbon is being emitted, are being produced for us to buy them. And, and we don't think that way. We only think in this territorial way about how to address c- climate change rather than thinking in this kind of relational way and I think that as long as we continue doing that as long as it's about individual nation states thinking about it as there is what they're going to do individually you're never going to solve what is actually a relational and a collectivity based problem
0: yeah i mean when you're saying that i do think that what's interesting here is that we are so globalized especially now compared to to the past and it's really difficult to think of ourselves as these sort of separate entities. And you know, the way that you're you're saying it just just puts it in such a simple form, right? That just because you're the one that produces the carbon doesn't mean that you're the only one that's going to be affected by it. And I think that this whole sort of way of thinking was was really visible during COVID especially where Just because this virus started or is existing in one certain place doesn't mean that it's not going to reach the rest of the world and highlight the fact that different countries and different places have different capacities to deal with it. I mean, there's still many, many countries that don't have vaccines and never will and we saw all these cases coming out of places like India where people quite literally could not socially distance.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that gets into a really deep public health debate, not just about COVID vaccines, but all kinds of vaccines and, and whether um, countries have to buy this from American corporations at the prices those American corporations are willing to sell them to them for, or whether they should have the right to make their own vaccines as China has tried to do for COVID, because that run then runs up against all kinds of patent, global patent regulations and so on. You can be sued by Merck for violating the patent if you try and make your own vaccines. In South Africa, for example. I mean, the the reality here, I mean, we've always lived in in an interconnected world, right? I mean, globalization isn't something that started in 1980, even though we talk about this era of globalization. It started when humans left Africa, however many thousands of years ago that was. But it's intensified. And, 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 and the intensification of those global connections um, prioritizes this way of thinking geographically, not just about the characteristics of places, but about how the world is connected together and about how things move across different geographical scales. And 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 so all of these concepts matter. The concept of place matters, but the concept of of interaction and connectivity matters. The process, concept of interscalar relations. All of these things need to be part of how we think about this. It's one of the things that geographers can bring to these to these kinds of of conversations. I mean, I, I do think that we're entering. I mean, so 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 one thing which is worth is important to point out is that this era of sort of hypermarket globalization of neoliberal globalization which which emerged as a policy norm out of the US and the UK in the 1980s and became kind of the glo- global default way of thinking about things um, create it, it connected the world together but it also created inequalities in these different places and we reached a point in the mid in, well around 2016 really where um, the problems it was creating also in the global north led to major political shifts, shifts that led to the election of Trump in the US, led to the Brexit decision in the UK. Um, and I think we're now entering a, a geopolitical era where nationalism is back on the, is on the rise again because people would say, well, well, that globalization, that didn't work, right? So nation states are coming back and thinking much more about what's good for them, which which is really bad because... The inter- these connect- interconnectives are not going to go away. Uh, the, the, we, can, we, can't, we, we can't put globalization back in the bottle, as it were, and even if you wanted to. Um, but it really creates a problem because it, it undermines our capacity as humans to think collectively about our common good. Instead, we're back to thinking territorially about what's, what's, what's going to be good for the United States versus what's going to be good for China, for example. Which is not to say that neoliberal globalization had the answers. It certainly didn't. But what it does say is that as a human species, we need to be thinking across all of these scales and collaborating across all of these scales and not falling into a new era of sort of national, national advantage and, and, and so on, because that just makes the problems worse. Uh, but unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that on the table right now. I mean, Trump certainly accelerated this process, but even under Biden, China, US rivals, for example, have become something which is a high priority again, and who knows where the hell that that can lead.
0: So it seems sort of based on this conversation that the only way out, or well, the only way to improve these inequalities, whether we're talking about gender or income or race, is to acknowledge that we can't do it on our own. And so I think it's a bit, you know, disheartening and a bit frustrating looking at the sort of state of global politics that and where we're going, that this is sort of the the opposite of what we need to be doing. But maybe something that I'm taking from this conversation is that maybe if we're able to educate people about geography and demonstrate that we are all connected and none of us and none of our countries and none of our cities exist in a vacuum, then maybe we can start sort of shifting this mindset to one where we acknowledge that we're all impacting each other and that we need to find a way out, but only if we are able to do it together. So thinking about that, then it brings me to our final concluding question that we ask all of our guests here, and one that I am particularly excited to hear your answer to, which is, what is geography?
1: Geography for me is a very capacious discipline. It allows you to ask all kinds of questions without you feeling like you're getting outside your field. Um, Unlike, say, economics, which is a very very particular set of questions, but lots of other questions, they don't don't fit. So it's an amazingly rich discipline, and and a remarkably invisible discipline, particularly in places like the United States, where you don't even take it in the schools, and, and people just discover it by chance at university. What it brings to these conversations are four things the first thing it brings to come back to some a place we started is a respect for an acknowledgement of difference so it's taking difference seriously as something which is always going to be there and should be allowed to be there right so instead of thinking about China as on the wrong development path because it refuses to follow the American model to take seriously china's approach to are making their country better on its own right and allowing these different approaches to operate in different parts of the world and to learn from one another rather than trying to lock everybody into the same development model. So taking difference seriously and respecting that social and spatial difference is a kind of, always always been a core feature of geography, right? The old geography was all about this place is like this, this country is like this, and that country is like that. We, those differences matter, and they should still matter, right? The second thing is geography's capacity to think, sp- to bring these spatial questions here, to get away from, to use the example I used in the rest of the talk, of get away from the, the narrowness of place based thinking, to think relationally about how places are connected, how scales are interconnected, and so on. The third thing geography brings to the table is. It being a discipline which really takes nature-society relations as a core issue. And the fourth thing is just this incredible breadth of what what geographers do from from really sort of hard-nosed earth scientists at one end of the discipline to people working on questions of culture and identity and so on at the other end of the discipline. So geography as a disciplinary space is a space where where all of these really hard questions we face right now can be asked as long as we can take advantage of and bring these different aspects of the discipline into productive conversation with one another, rather than having the physical geographers doing their stuff over there, and the cultural geographers doing their stuff over there, and never the twains shall me So, geography and discipline has incredible potential, but reaching that potential is always about um, Respect for difference and and engagement across difference also within the discipline. In the same way that we preach this in terms of, of how we should think about the world